Good morning, everyone. Our first case is C Investments 2 LLC versus Auger et al. And we will hear from the appellant. the court. My name is Richard Venroot. I'm a lawyer from Charlotte with the firm of Robinson, Bradshaw, and Henson. Uh, I'm here representing basically my wife, and I have signed and participated in the brief in the first case. As all of your honors, I think, know this case is part of a trilogy of three cases dealing with the common schemes or of, of development. Uh, and it affects uh, people like my wife and me, and thus I have a high burden of representing her. I don't want to disappoint her in what I do. Um, if you'll permit me to uh, please the court, I'd like to quote several things that I can read briefly. Uh, I'm, I'm not very techno technological, so I can only do it if I read a piece of paper, uh, and then I will chat briefly after that. Then I will step down, and my co-counsel will then argue as well. Uh, first of all, uh, I'd like to quote uh, my worthy opponent, Mike Adams, uh, in his reply brief, which says, the purpose of the Real Property Marketable Title Act is not up for debate. It exists to extinguish property interests, <coughs> including restrictive covenants. Secondly, I'd like to quote um, Justice Fry, whose picture I see up on the left, where he discusses the Marketable Title Act exceptions. And he says the exceptions listed, of course, this act and our provisions are 13 of those exceptions, do not serve as a sword to establish title, <coughs> but instead, and I'm paraphrasing, serve as a shield to protect from extinguishment the rights therein accepted. Next, I'd like to, to quote Justice Buck Wainwright, who was a attorney brother of mine whose portrait's outside there, I noticed this morning, uh, in a case called Roy White Cleaners, which led to my wife and me being brought into this case. He said the right to enforce restriction was a property right with value. Those restrictions, he was dealing with restrictions in the Elizabeth neighborhood near where I live, constitute property rights of distinct worth. Any adjudication that extinguishes property rights without giving property owner an opportunity to be heard cannot yield a valid judgment because the voiding of the covenants would extinguish their property rights. I'd also like to quote uh, Judge Wanda Bryant who served as the lead <clears throat> panel in a case called Myers Park Baptist Church, also cited in our brief. Uh, Judge Wanda Bryant said, we also recognize at the Court of Appeals that residential restrictions are generally a property right of distinct worth. And finally, uh, Justice Fry again in the McDonald's Corporation case that we cited, and he says as follows, notice and an opportunity to be heard prior to depriving a person of property are essential elements of due process. Guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, a fundamental requirement of due process is notice reasonably calculated to apprise parties and afford them an opportunity to present their objections. Notice greater than that provided by application of law under a statute of limitations is required prior to divestment of a vested property interest. Affording them notice, an opportunity to be heard, and just compensation. He says we conclude the statute in that case is unconstitutional because it does not provide sufficient notice, an opportunity to be heard, and compensation before divesting owners of a valuable property right. And finally, very briefly, from our U.S. Constitution, uh, Section 1 of um, Article 14, nor shall any state deprive any person of, and I'm paraphrasing, property without due process of law. And of course, the 14th, that was the 14th Amendment in the body of the, of the Constitution itself. Uh, Section 10 of Article 1, no state shall pass any law impairing the obligations of contracts. Uh, I think that those are the principles that really concern us most here today and are the reason a number of my neighbors are actually here uh, because of their concern, as my wife and I have, of the effect of this, we think, misinterpretation, misapplication of this law 
uh, by the court below. Uh, you know that the day of infamy was December 7, 1941. And I think you also know that Hiroshima was the dropping of the first bomb, August of 45, August 6. I regard uh, October 1 of 1976 as being a, a bit of a Hiroshima of property rights all over this state not just in my neighborhood, but neighborhoods all around me in the city of Charlotte. I was a scoutmaster for 10 years on Oaklawn Avenue, right on the shadow of Johnson C. Smith for 10 years. It's a lovely little neighborhood whose, whose uniform scheme of restrictions were established in 1946, just after the war ended. A number of faculty at Smith worked there. They're, they don't know, and I suspect people all over North Carolina do not know that on October 1, 1976, they lost a lot of property rights overnight, immediately, as if a bomb had been dropped. Uh, I like to quote, and I've done it before, before your honors, I think, Judge Newby, uh, Oliver Twist, uh, Charles Dickens, when he said, if, this, if that be the law, the law is a ass. Uh, if this be the law, and this happened to us and people all over North Carolina without notice, without being heard, without compensation, and we lost what your court and these fine justices and judges have declared as valuable property rights, stripping us basically of everything but a single residential restriction, then I think one could say that is probably the case here. Uh, <clears throat> as you know, uh, after this case was rendered, uh, Webster's, which is the foremost authority on real estate law in this state, amended their textbook, which I think is rather startling, to say this decision is just plain wrong. And they said the reasoning is as if we were dancing on the head of a needle. Uh, I have uh, quoted, and uh, this is my high tech, I'll get back to this in a moment. I have quoted uh, the case of Rice versus Kohoan, and my worthy adversaries have said that we shouldn't be doing that because they didn't say anything pertinent to this decision. But indeed they did. And I won't read it to you, but they talk about, and they quote extensively, Judge Boner's conclusions of law. And then they read, finally, we therefore hold, hold, that the trial court correctly concluded that there was a general plan of development for the lots in Jefferson Park, and that the owners of the lots encumbered by the restricted covenants, they didn't say covenant, they said covenants, could enforce those covenants against owners of similarly restricted lots. They, however, decided that those people had voted effectively to terminate those restrictions by a majority and that the trial court below has mi had miscounted the votes by basically giving each owner a vote instead of each lot a vote. And one owner had 10 lots, and when you added that to his total, they overwhelmed those who were voting to keep their restrictions. I remember something, uh, Judge Irvin, that your grandfather <clears throat> said, who incidentally has written eloquently about the importance of schemes of development. They started writing about that in the 30s and 40s in this court. And they talked about how they important they were to cohesion and containing a neighborhood. Uh, and, and I remember what he said uh, one time when in the Senate someone questioned what he understood, and he said, well, I, I understand the English language. It is my mother tongue. I, I understand the English language, and I understand what Koholan said about this subject. And I certainly understand what this court and the Court of Appeals have said before about the value of the property that I and others at all strata all across this state owned on October 1, 1976, when we overnight, without knowing it, lost all of that but a single residential restriction. Finally, I will go back to the statute itself and tell you that, yes, it is ambiguous. And there are some missing S's, I think, that ought to be there. But I believe that first sentence is more than fertilizer. I think that one of the interpretations made by the court below was somehow this was the primary sentence, that restricting to multifamily or single family or simply residential. But that means provided that single restriction grew out of a uniform scheme. Why? Why is that so important that a scheme fertilize a single restriction? They've decided that's the principal 
sentence and these qualified. I believe it's the reverse. I think that first sentence is what they were talking about, the scheme. The scheme that so many jurists in this courtroom talked about their importance all through the 30s and 40s and 50s. And that scheme is what was being protected, provided it's only a multifamily or single family or residential scheme, and provided it's not one that grew out of a one-off between a seller to a purchaser who, in the middle of the stream, decided to try to create something that restricted the property. That surely died 30 years after this statute was adopted. That surely died on October the 1st, for example, in my neighborhood. Uh, but that would not kill, in my, in my view, nor did it, did, it, did it mean to kill the scheme itself. Uh, I think this case is wrong. I think if it is right, then I really believe the law is a ass. It's not right. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. May it please the court, my name is Ken Davies. I represent the appealing defendants in this case, along with Mr. Benroot and Mr. Smith, as well as the plaintiffs in the Eastover case. Um, and we appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm just going to take a few minutes to point out that in this particular case, uh, my clients were sued uh, by an outside developer who seeks to void the deed restrictions uh, in Country Colony, a neighborhood that has existed and was uh, uh, developed in accordance with a consistent uh, scheme of development. Um, the developer has not lived in the community. The developer will not live in the community. Uh, the developer simply seeks to change the nature of the community. Now, using the Marketable Title Act, the Court of Appeals actually agreed with the defendant's or, uh, plaintiff's argument in this case. And what we have up here are the, the protective covenants for the neighborhood. And they're in the record. Uh, and they're very uh, normal and usual pattern of restrictions, starting out with residential use, setbacks, height restrictions, uh, lot size, et cetera, et cetera. Webster says this is very common in North Carolina uh, and it appears in many, many neighborhoods. Now, based upon application, a very narrow interpretation of exception 13, this is what happened to my client's neighborhood as far as the protections uh, that it had and hopefully will have after that is reversed by this court. But this is the effect of the narrow application of Exception 13 to the covenants. That was a majority opinion. The uh, dissent, Judge Dillon, was a little more lenient. He found some ambiguity or, or some, some different interpretation of Exception 13 and this is the result of the minority opinion of Judge Dilling. But as you can see, it still uh, is a tremendous savage attack on the restrictions uh, in this neighborhood. Are covenants three through eight at issue before us? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, well, there, I believe there's nine total. Let's see. Yeah, there's nine. So uh, two through nine are at issue before you. All right. Uh, doesn't the dissent primarily talk about one, two, and nine? Yes. The part of uh, two and part of nine would be uh, covered by exception 13 in the dissent, Judge Dillon's dissent. That is correct. Yes. Thank you. So, so basically where we find ourselves in this case is that Mr. Adams and his folks say only number one survives, nothing else. You say they all survive, and Judge Dillon apparently without uh, representation before the court would have one and parts of two others apply. Yes, correct. Okay. Which, which, which leads to the conclusion I hope this court will, will go, get to is that the exception 13 based on, uh, is, is, uh, is certainly ambiguous. Uh, we would urge this court to interpret exception 13 to shield from extinction the country colony protective covenants which together form the uniform scheme of development for the neighborhood. This is the correct holding because the exception is ambiguous and can be reasonably uh, read to include all the uniform <clears throat> scheme of development covenants. For well, it, I mean, it, to, to quibble perhaps just a little bit, 
I mean, assuming that we were to agree with you that the uh, statute is ambiguous, at that point, instead of adopting, at that point, our job becomes to use the applicable canons of construction to determine what the language means, uh, not could it mean something or something else, but rather what it does mean given the application of those rules. I mean, that's what we're supposed just to serving, that's exactly correct. If it's plain as day, you use the common, uh, under the case law, you, you apply the common understanding of terms, unless there's a sp special term of art that might be used in a statute, and common rules of grammar that we all learned in middle school, and if that, you apply that and it's plain and un unambiguous, then you stop there. But if you find some ambiguity, the case law says you go to the legislative intent, uh, the circumstances of the act, the policy behind the act, and, and um, uh, uh, apply doctrines of statutory interpretation, which would include uh, the doctrine of surplusage, which I'd like to speak to briefly, and, and which, which each of you have used against the other, best I can read your brief. Right. I, I've, I've read there are 61 uh, canons of statutory construction. I never, I never bothered to count, but I'll take your word for it. Uh, but there is, a, there is one that is very strong and compelling in the case law, and that is to avoid constitutional conflict. Because this issue of taking these folks' property rights without notice or hearing has been strongly and adversely criticized and, and uh, rejected by this court throughout uh, you know, its history. Um, the, the other side will say, well, they could have uh, uh, filed uh, extensions of, the, of these covenants after the statute was passed. But that imposes upon my clients uh, a really undue and unfair burden and the reason it's undue and unfair is because, number one, the law itself uh, is, is ambiguous. It's hard to read. All the, uh, the uh, Webster's, when, when, it, when this law was passed, uh, said that it was a broad exception. The, the Finley article, which is attached to our brief, describes why, it was, why this exception was added on during the course of the legislative history, which, which, which was to protect neighborhoods which had no zoning overlay well, let, in Mecklenburg let, let's, let's look at some of the, help, help me with some of the language of the thing. Sure. I mean, I understand sort of the basic policy arguments on each side of this discussion, sure. but ultimately what we've got to do is look at the words, and it says covenants applicable. Right. Now, what does applicable mean in, in, in your interpretation? Well, this, this, this is a, this is a it, it describes what it's applicable to. The covenants are applicable to a general or uniform scheme in development. Well, I mean, it just struck me in looking at it that applicable was an interesting word to use there. It doesn't say covenants that are part of. It doesn't say some other things it could say. What does applicable mean? Just, just take that one word. What does well, it mean there? I would argue, uh, Justice Urban, that it, that one through nine are the covenants applicable to applicable to the uniform scheme of development for country colony. Uh, that seems pretty. Uh, it is an inter interesting uh, term, but uh, why would you have a general or uniform scheme of development in there at all? You don't need that under the interpretation. Uh, put forward by the uh, plaintiff in this case. Mr. Davies, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, can we back up for just a second? I wanted to ask you about something you said a minute ago about the um, undue burden. And, yes. and I take it, and I want to make sure I'm following what you were referring to, that you were referring to 47B-4, where the parties can, by filing a notice, preserve whatever rights they claim are being taken away. Thank you, uh, Justice Hudson. Uh, and uh, we're trying to reserve <clears throat> 10 minutes for rebuttal, so I'll, I'll be uh, as quick as I can with that. But that's an extremely good question. What uh, Webster, who was the proponent of this law, Professor Webster out of Wake Forest, he was the proponent of this law. It was passed virtually intact with what he proposed with, with all these exceptions added on later. Uh, he was concerned about the constitutionality as well. And so he said, well, maybe this will, this will keep this court from ruling that it's unconstitutional. Uh, but here's what, here's what a person has to do 
a neighbor has to do, they have to do a title search on their, their neighbor's property. They have to determine whether the, uh, the exception applies. They have to determine whether other exceptions apply. And then they have to file and index that with every other property owner in the neighborhood. Uh, it, they, and certainly there's even a penalty if they falsely file an extension. Uh, I, in, in, I don't think there's a lawyer in this room who's ever seen that animal in the Register of Deeds office. Uh, and, and so I would, I, would, I would say that to impose upon my clients the duty to search their neighbor's title to determine if, if they needed to file an extension against their neighbor, they would have to go hire a lawyer to get that done determine this vague line, whether this bank, you know, all the lawyers in North Carolina well, approach this. I, I'm just looking at the, the statute, and it appears to require filing of a notice duly acknowledged in the Office of the Register of Deeds for the county, um, and that preserves your right for 30 years. And uh, as I understand it, you can keep doing that. Is that right? Yeah. You, well, but the problem is you can't, there's a penalty if you file a false Number two, you have to actually search all your neighbor's titles to get that done. That is a unfair burden, especially when the statute, the, the exception is vague, and everyone, including Webster, said it was a broad exception that included all your neighbor's restrictions. So uh, you, you're basically, Justice Hudson, uh, uh, presented with the issue, does that really are we going to run into the Constitution unless if we interpret this the same way the Court of Appeals does? And, and, and this, the canon is, uh, it doesn't have to be a certainty, it just has to be a real tenable argument that it could be unconstitutional for you to, to apply that doctrine of, of constitutional avoidance. Um, Do we have a constitutional issue before us for review? Not directly, okay. but you do have it in the terms of the constitutional avoidance canon of statutory interpretation. Okay. Thank uh, you. Interesting, Justice Hudson, I, I better sit down, um, that uh, uh, it, this is 2022. This law was passed in 1973. This is the first time this issue has come before this court in, in 49 years. Now, if there was a real uh, unless there was a real consensus that this objection covered my neighbor's uh, restrictive covenants, it, it certainly would have come up earlier. So uh, I, I must sit down now so we can reserve our time. Thank you for your questions. And, and well, you're, you're the boss here. Is there any other, question, any other questions I, I need to answer? <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you. Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, your honors, uh, my name is Mike Adams, and along with my colleague Morgan Rogers, we represent C Investments II LLC, the plaintiff appellee, and C Investments IV LLC as successors to the Tillmans, and that's Mr. McCorkle over there, who is a principal of C Investments II LLC. Uh, Judge Dietz's and Judge Inman's excellently written majority opinion should be affirmed. Restrictive covenants are not favored under the law. They interfere with the free use and marketability of the fee interest in the property. They have historically been used as tools of exclusion to keep certain elements out of neighborhoods. The law provides a mechanism to keep them in place. No matter how important or trivial the covenants may seem to any person, they can be extended for 30 years and for 30 years and for 30 years again. Well, what, is, is what do you say about uh, Mr. Davies? argument that it creates an enormous burden to have to do that? The United States Supreme Court has already answered that question in, um, in, the, in Texaco versus Short. Um, and uh, if I'll get to my point in the notes there. Um, what, what the United States Supreme Court said and is, is this, and of course this court has also answered it in Sheets v. Walsh as well, I believe but that states are entitled to define the aspects of property interests 
And the Texaco versus Short case involved uh, the Indiana um, Mineral Lapse Act, which functioned identically to the Real Property Marketable Title Act in this case. And what the Supreme Court said, and this is 54 U.S. set between pages 525 and 526, the state of Indiana has defined a severed mineral estate as a vested property interest entitled to the same protection as our fee simple titles. Through the Dormant Mineral Interest Act, however, the state has declared that this property interest is of less than absolute duration. Retention is conditioned on the performance of at least one of the actions required by the act. That case required use of the mineral estates and it defined four or five different aspects of use. The Supreme Court goes on to say this, we have no doubt that just as a state may create a property interest that is entitled to constitutional protection, the state has the power to condition the permanent retention of that interest, of that property right, on the performance of reasonable conditions that indicate a present intention to retain the interest. If, if I understood Mr. Davies' answer, though, to Justice Hudson's earlier concern, he described a process that he contended was extreme, extremely onerous in order to file a notice, make sure it went in everybody's chain of title and all those other things that he talked about that I won't try to summarize. Uh, what's your response to that? The response to that, Your Honor, is that the legislature balanced competing interest in drafting this legislation because historically, all real property was burdened with every servitude, every possibility of reverter, every title defect that existed to the beginning of time, which in our state goes back sometime to the 1700s, potentially, depending on where the property is located. And so in order to address that, it created the Marketable Title Act, which, as the court is aware, functions to serve as one place, the Connor Act, where, where deeds are registered, one place to look for record title, and one time period, a 30-year time period. So when a first-time home buyer buys a house, buys a starter home, before the Marketable Title Act, that first-time home buyer had to look at every deed in the chain of the title going back to the original grant, because under Turner versus Glenn, everyone is presumed to know the contents of every one of those deeds. So when we balance these burdens, these are relative burdens. The burden of a first-time home buyer to look at every deed in the chain of title going back to 1700 versus the burden of an established homeowner who already has the title search, by the way, from when they acquired the property, to file a preservation notice, which it, the Register of Deeds and, is the and one that maybe, maybe I didn't ask my question very well, but what is the process that would have to be followed in order to file such a preservation notice? I mean, what would you, if I was to uh, do what my malpractice company would not have liked me to do where I'm still practicing and uh, tried to file one of these things, what would I have had to do? So you, you have to file um, an, a notice, right, that's duly acknowledged, meaning it has to be properly notarized. Right. You have to go to the register of deeds, and uh, the notice um, um, has to contain a description of the real property affected by the notice. So you have to say it applies to the neighborhood, which again can the, be the, done the by the entire neighborhood. If you want to preserve it for the entire neighborhood. Well, that, I, I thought Correct. that's what we were trying right. to do with this process. So. But, but in, in this case, we have a map. By reference to a map, you could easily define the entire neighborhood and the map is recorded. And then you're supposed to put the, cur the current names of the registered owners. I have the entire statute in front of me. There may be more requirements. Basically, you that. would file a description which you could, uh, you could uh, accomplish by referencing a map and then put, list the names of all the current owners of the property and file a single document that did those two things? Correct. And if we look at it, it that, that's, that's how I view it. And, and, and if we look at, what the legislature is apparently trying to accomplish with the second time it has now spoken on the issue, because the legislature has spoken on this issue twice, right? The legislature spoke in 1973 when it enacted the Real Property Marketable Title Act with Exception 13, 
And it spoke again in 2022 when it enacted Exception 14. And as the court is aware, Exception 14 is designed to preserve covenants of planned communities. Planned community is a statutorily defined term. These neighborhoods are not planned communities because they do not require payment of property taxes and other things for other properties. The statutory definition um, of, uh, Your Honor, bear with me one second, is in 47F110323, the definition of planned community. These are not planned communities. But when the legislature drafted Exception 14, it again balanced interest. It did not preserve every set of covenants for planned communities. If the planned community was created before 1999, the covenants would be preserved if there is an HOA in place as of July 1 of 2022, and they would be extinguished if there was no HOA in place as of July 1 of um, 2022. And I'm trying to get to the answer to your question, Justice Urban, but I think that shows a balancing of the interest that if there's an HOA in place, it's reasonable to assume that the HOA would be in charge of filing this notice. That would be a standard procedure for an owner's <coughs> association, and that's the collective group of the entire neighborhood. So, so, so uh, yes. Don't mean to interrupt you, but just on this minor point, so is it, so do you disagree then um, that uh, since this, um, the Real Property Marketable Title Act was first enacted, that, that there have not been any of these notices filed? Is it, you're, are you saying, in fact, uh, homeowners associations file these routinely and they are in the Register of Deeds? Your Honor, I have absolutely no idea and there's nothing in the record that answers that question. Well, I do want to ask you a more fundamental question, I think, um, to the extent we're interpreting what the legislature meant in enacting this um, exception. And you talked about, uh, so assuming that it is ambiguous, then we do have to look to the legislative intent. And you talked about, you've been talking a lot about the intent behind the um, Real Par Property Marketable Title Act being a balance of equities and the burden of having to, to go back and search title. But, but if the legislature is exempting the residential use covenant, doesn't, wouldn't any um, property t uh, search, title search that is required to determine whether there is that restrictive covenant necessarily also find the other ones uh, related to a, pl a planned community or a subdivision? Perhaps, if the title search was performed, but people can make an informed decision not to look for the residential use exception that might have been filed in 1920. And the reason for that is, is, is I think, clear from the body of law. Um, if the neighborhood no longer looks like a residential use neighborhood, those covenants will be extinguished under the radical change doctrine announced in the Madeiras and in other cases. So people buying a property will know that they are purchasing a residential property. But, but they isn't can either determine that that covenant exists or that they can take the risk that there is or is not such a covenant. But my understanding was that, that part of the whole purpose for this exception is, is the belief that uh, the, if you live in a subdivision that is restricted to residential use, then, then you can feel your property value will be maintained. You can feel comfortable that there isn't going to be some um, noxious commercial use um, put in place. And so why wouldn't it be important to property owners and, and to their understanding of maintaining the value in their property to know whether or not such a covenant existed? Because if we can see in these cases, the other covenants, the setbacks and the structure covenants produce prolific lit uh, litigation. That's why we're here today. In the Lori Postal case, she cannot build anything on her lot because of a minimum size restriction. But as I, I believe I'm correct that in that case, that restriction was not part of a subdivision that was that where there was a set of restrictive covenants all imposed at the same time. I'm not familiar w with that record, Your Honor, and so I, I, I can't answer that question. But in, in the in this, but the legislature decided that these non-possessory interests interfere with the marketability of the property and are prolific producers of, of litigation and therefore requested that the court liberally construe the statute in um, 
to affect the legislative purpose of simplifying and facilitating real property title transactions by allowing persons to rely on a record chain of title of 30 years as described in GS 47B2, subject only to the limitations as appear in GS 47B3, the legislature had an opportunity to overrule the Court of Appeals and chose not to do that. That's speaking rather loudly on the legislation. There's been some discussion about interests being balanced. What's your response to what the other side says about its interest in terms of the preservation of restrictive covenants versus what you're advocating, which is the promotion of marketability under the uh, Marketable Act when it comes to the extinction of or the extinguishment of restrictive covenants after 30 years? Where's the balance there between those respective interests? I believe, Justice Morgan, the balance there is in 47B4, which is the preservation notice provision. Everyone, everyone in the neighborhood has the power to preserve and extend these covenants for a number, number, another 30 years. And as the United States Supreme Court has stated, it's fair for a state to require people to show a present intention to use a property interest. These are non-possessory interests and that is the legislatively selected mechanism to do that. And so that's, that is the balance the legislature chose, and both this court and the United States Supreme Court have held in different contexts that that is, a, that is a decision that the legislature has the power to make. It's constitutional to make that decision. In light of what the other side has said then concerning the uh, lack of due process in the notice to be heard, uh, potentially, are you saying that by virtue of the opportunity to renew the restrictive covenants that the other side is being overly dramatic about what they're contending, or are you saying that there's something uh, otherwise? I think overly dramatic is a fair statement. That, that regime of cases, again, going through Texaco versus Short and, and, and Sheets versus Dillon, provide that it is okay to dis extinguish interests and that the notice and the opportunity to be heard applies to the adjudication. And no one is contending that they did not have notice and an opportunity to be heard in this proceeding. Secondly, this statute was passed in 1973 and it provided a three-year grace period for any neighborhood that was abutting up the 30-year period in which its covenants would expire. These covenants didn't expire on the passage of the legislation because they were recorded in 1952. 30 years didn't pass until 1982. So the people had almost 10 years to act. We're all presumed to know the law that our <clears throat> society won't function unless people have an obligation to know the law and unless they're presumed to know the law. Well, understanding that they would have to know what exception 13 actually covered, I want to go back to uh, um, try, uh, your position on how we interpret what this exception, which was added to the Real Property Marketable Title Act as an, uh, an amendment. And, and I'm particularly interested in the last clause of the first sentence because it says, Covenants applicable to a general or uniform scheme of development which restrict the property to residential use only, provided said covenants are otherwise enforceable. Doesn't that appear to reference the types of covenants like racially restrictive covenants that were deemed to not be enforceable but were still present in a lot of deeds and, and um, uh, Relate, uh, deeds that set up a common scheme of development. Those, those, those types of restrictive covenants, which unfortunately appear throughout many of the cases, have been held unenforceable, but there are other reasons for covenants to be unenforceable. They're either vague or, or various different reasons that covenants may be unenforceable. And we're, we're, we're talking about an exception to a statute which extinguishes it. So there's no reason for the legislature to provide an exception for otherwise unenforceable covenants. That would not make sense. But, but you're asking us to say that the plain language of this um, ex exception uh, number 13 
uh, applies only to residential use, and in fact, not even restrictions that um, talk about single-family dwellings. So not the dwellings, but just the use. Correct. That, o that this only could apply to residential use restrictions and no other type of restriction. And I'm just trying to understand why would they need to say, if that was in fact what the legislature intended, if that's what was in their mind when they added, when they amended the act to include this exception, why would they need to say provided said covenants are otherwise enforceable in light of the fact that it's these other types of um, range of covenants that had previously been de determined not enforceable. Again, Your Honor, I believe that because it would not make sense to provide an exception for unenforceable covenants. It would not make sense, and, and it would, it would, it, 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 and so it's saying we are not accepting unenforceable covenants. So the language in the first sentence, covenants applicable to a general or uniform scheme of development was intentionally chosen because those are the types of covenants that run with the land. If it is not applicable to a uniform, general or uniform scheme of development, it is a personal covenant. Personal well, covenants and, and, can and last and longer your, than 30 years. Your colleague argues in his brief, if I understood him, and he's free to correct me if I didn't, but he seems to argue if, uh, that since personal covenants don't run with the land, there's no reason to include this language if it was intended to do what you just described. I think that's his counter to this part of your argument. What, what's your response to that? Well, I, my response to that is that that, that, um, that it, it's, it's both not true and it misses the point, right? So personal covenants can last longer than 30 years. They can remain enforceable. And the a legislature could rationally decide that a personal covenant should not be accepted, whereas a real covenant should be accepted. So it, that language is not rendered meaningless. It's an intentional choice. In the same way that it was an intentional choice for, in the first sentence, for the term covenants open as a plural, and in the second sentence to refer to an accepted covenant. That's not an accidental change in the plurality of the words. The statute announces a parallel series of rights Every one, one through 14, each start with a plural rights, interest, whatever the word may be. So it made sense to start with a plural, but the shift to the singular in the second sentence signifies something very important because the covenants, the, the covenants in this case are like the covenants in the hobby case. There are seven, eight, or not nine in this case, right? The first one is that it will be used for residential purposes only. Um, it, you, you don't... You don't need all the rest, right? And, and when the court said that the accepted covenant could be multifamily or single family, it's saying that if we had not added this sentence, there was the potential for only the residential use restriction <coughs> to apply and not the single family or the multifamily to apply. It is grammatic, grammatically con correct and internally consistent. I ho hope I've answered your question. And let me ask you the question that I asked Mr. Davies, I believe. Uh, the word applicable struck me for some reason as an interesting choice. Can you tell me why uh, the General Assembly, in your view, would have chosen to use the word applicable rather than something like a, as a part of, or I can probably think up some others, but that's the one sure. that occurred to me. So, um, well, well, well. I read applicable to mean covenants which apply to. So these are covenants which are applicable to a general or uniform scheme of development, meaning that they become real covenants. They become covenants that run with the land. But then the key language is which restrict the property to residential use only. It's not the general or uniform scheme which restrict the property to residential use only, it's the covenants, because that, that, that is the plurality of those two words. So the language is covenants which restrict the property to residential use only are preserved. The legislature didn't announce any intention to preserve a general or uniform scheme of development. And again, that is reinforced in the second sentence, because in the second sentence, when it says the accepted covenant, singular, could be a um, um, restrict the property to multifamily or single-family residential use, 
There is no reference to setbacks or structure covenants or the quantities of structures on the property. Wasn't the reason that it says that is because in order to be uh, to fall under the exception, uh, it has to have the residential lot use only. So a residential use only. So, for example, with these protective covenants, if number one, we're not a part of it, then even though it may be a general or uniform scheme of development, two through nine, because it doesn't, uh, uh, the scheme itself doesn't restrict to residential use only, it would not be applicable. And then it goes with number two that says the covenant, accepted covenant, in other words, the one that uh, makes this possible <coughs> at all, because it says residential lots only, uh, that one can be multifamily, single family, or simply as it does here, say residential use. Uh, why doesn't that take into account every word, every sentence, uh, that interpretation? I think because it misapplies the effect of the first sentence, respectfully, uh, Justice Newby, I think because the, the interpretation that you're rendering would be it's the general or uniform scheme of development which restricts, would, would have to have an S. And it's not the general or uniform scheme of development which is restricting. What the only thing S? restricts would have to have an S in the first sentence if the legislature was trying to preserve the general or uniform scheme of development. Why does it go with covenants and applicable or applying to a general or uniform scheme of development talks about the covenants as a whole, but there needs to be one that restricts it to residential use. Otherwise, these covenants uh, uh, would not fall under the exception. I don't read it that way because, is, is, and I believe Your Honor agrees by the nature of the question, covenants two through nine do not restrict the property to residential use only. So covenants two through nine are not covered by the exception of being covenants which restrict the property to residential use only. Covenants under that, two through under nine that don't reading, that. sentence three becomes unnecessary. Sentence three is the standalone, hey, uh, we don't have a general uniform scheme of development. All we have is a restriction that limits the property to residential use only. That's not going to fly. What you have to have is the <coughs> general and uniform scheme of development, not the standalone uh, residential use only. I read the third sentence to, to, to mean that the, the restrictive covenants, other than those mentioned herein, which limit the property to residential use only, he's referring to the three above. Residential use only covenant, multifamily use only covenant, and single family use only covenant. And no, anything other than those are not accepted. You've got a plural there. Restrictive uh, covenants other than those mentioned here. All other restrictive covenants are not accepted. That's what that says. <laughs> but if we read the second sentence the way you suggest, it's, it's singular. So what you're saying is that uh, the uh, uh, plural of sentence one and the plural of sentence three should be read out of it. No, I, I, I don't agree. because I, I, at least I don't agree with that statement. So, and, 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 and exception 13 is accepting all covenants which restrict the property to residential use only, right? All neighborhoods, all covenants. But, they have, but the covenant has to restrict the property to residential use only. And under the settled doctrine of the court, the structure covenants do not do that. So what is the general scheme, uh, general or uniform scheme? What, what does that, that add to it? That adds to it by making the distinction between covenants which run with the land. It has to be a part of a general or uniform scheme to, to run with the land. Otherwise, it's a personal covenant. And that's the holding of both Sedbury, Sedbury versus Parsons and, and um, Phillips versus Wearn. If they're, if they, if the, in, in Sedbury, the, the, the covenant prohibited subdivision of the lot to less than half an acre, but that covenant only applied to half the lots in the neighborhood the court held that it was not part of a general or uniform scheme. And the significance of not being a part of a general or uniform scheme is that means only the original two parties can enforce it. Subsequent owners in the chain of title cannot enforce personal covenants. 
But personal covenants remain valid so long as the grantor is around. And that would certainly show up in the any title search because you don't go back 30 years and stop. You have to go back to the deed that you're searching. So that would certainly become evident in any title search, even if it's 40 or 50 years old, if it's in the same grantor. Yeah. Yes, and, and Your Honor, the, 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 this case is unusual because there's, there's no dispute that, the, um, um, that, the, um, that these restrictive covenants do not appear in extended chains of title that go back eight or more deeds over 50 years. The purpose of the Marketable Title Act is to end the search. The title searcher can end the search. There's no reason for a first-time home buyer to have to get a title search to the beginning of time. That so, so let's say that uh, in one of the deeds, one deed, they say those restrictions recorded in deed book page that makes reference to it. Is that reference in one deed, if it's less than 30 years, uh, would that save all the restrictions or would it only be for that property? Um, it would only it would only burden that property. The muniment of I, I believe you're referring to the muniment of title exception, which is 47B1, and the muniment of title are the deeds in the chain of title, not collateral instruments, only the deeds in the chain of title. So that if you have within the 30-year chain of title in your deed those restrictive covenants, then they burden your property. But all the my neighbors would not be burdened. Unless, unless they too had a reference in their chain of title, a lot has to a lot has to be excluded. But that's the reason for the act. The, these covenants have to not appear for 30 years. It's hard to get that. So everybody conveying property is making a decision not to specifically refer to the covenants. The rest of the neighbors are making a decision not to file preservation notices. The benefits of the Real Property Marketable Title Act, which are designed to make property transactions more efficient and cheaper, shouldn't be limited to commercial property. The citizens of North Carolina who own homes also ought to get those benefits. And, um, and the, the interpretation offered by the appellants will limit this to commercial property, and no homeowner will get the benefit, and they'll be then subject to being sued for a setback that was in some deed 80 years ago and then be in litigation for five years to resolve the issue. This court should firmly announce the clear language selected by the legislature twice and get rid of these unfavored interests and allow people to have one place, the register of deeds, and one period of time, 30 years, to look for what burdens the property so that we can have property that's useful for today as opposed to being property that's restricted by someone 80 years ago who may have no understanding of the current needs for that property. <clears throat> Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. Hey, please the court. My name is James Smith, uh, and I represent uh, 36 homeowners in the Eastover uh, neighborhood of Charlotte who have been joined as necessary party defendants in the Williams versus Reardon lawsuit, which is one of the trilogy of lawsuits before this court, because the outcome of that lawsuit is going to impact my client's vested property interests. Uh, in preserving and protecting the residential character of their neighborhood unless this court overturns the Court of Appeals interpretation. Uh, well, Mr. Smith, may I interrupt you uh, early on? Uh, I'm struggling with the constitutionality issue, and uh, your uh, colleagues on the other side have cited to uh, the Texaco case and also the McDonald's case as analogous to this situation. And at least my reading of Texaco involved a situation where the use of or the extraction extraction of minerals had not occurred for about 20 years, and the 
McDonald's case was a situation, I believe, of abandoned railroads. Are your, I believe you said 36 homeowners, are they still living there? Do they consider that they've abandoned their rights? Uh, can you please address, address that? Uh, and you can do so briefly because I know you have other points to make. Yes, ma'am. Um, the case, we, we think the McDonald's case is relevant to our situation because McDonald involved state action only. There was no failure to use or enjoy or exploit the benefits of the vested property right. It was simply a matter where the state came in and declared that the property was going to go to the adjacent property owners uh, by fiat, essentially. Whereas in Texaco and all of its progeny, Sheets, um, you know, Fannie Mae, all of those cases that follow the Texaco line, they all involve situations where the property owner didn't use the vested interest, didn't exploit it, didn't, didn't, didn't engage in it. And that's a very clear distinction that I believe this court has created in uh, the McDonald's Corp versus Dwyer case. It basically says if, if, if the only thing that's going on here is that the state has essentially issued uh, legislation that extinguishes a vested property right, then under McDonald and under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and Article I, Section 19 of the state constitution, there has to be due process. There has to be reasonable notice and an opportunity to be heard. And with this statute, that doesn't happen. Now, they say, for example, in, 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 uh, in uh, uh, they say that, that, that the, uh, I'm sorry, that there's a saving statute in 47B4 where you can just go down to the Registry of Deeds and, and, and essentially extend your period of time within which you can continue to enjoy the, the uh, residential you know, use of your property. That's all well and good, except it doesn't bind your neighbors. And so, you know, I mean, if I go down and make this registration called for in 47B4, I've bound my property, but I haven't bound any of my neighbors. My neighbor could erect a 30-story apartment building right next door to me, and if the only protection I have is residential use only, standing there naked and alone, I have no protection at all. It is critical that these, these this bundle of, 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 of covenants that are designed to preserve the residential character of the neighborhood they have to be maintained. And if you simply have the first one that says residential use only, and that's all you have, then you can have apartment buildings, you can have people violating setback restrictions, um, you can have a whole host of problems that arise, none of which are protected by the residential use only covenant standing alone. Texaco is a distinguishable case because it involved uh, not state action so much as inaction and, and failure to act on the part of the individual whose rights were affected by the law. And that's why that law was sustained, and that's also, conversely, why in the McDonald case the law was struck down. I believe that's all I have, if, if anyone has any questions. Thank you, counsel. I think my colleague Richard has another remark. I heard a question that I don't think was answered. We raised this issue in our petition for discretionary review. It is absolutely before this court. This constitutional question is here, and as Justice Exum has said, when you give two choices, and one's unconstitutional and one's constitutional, you really ought to prefer the one that's constitutional and not the one that is a taking. Is that right? Page 23, I beg your pardon. I can't read without my glasses. Of our petition for discretionary review, we've raised this issue. It's well before your honor. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone. All right. Hang on. Okay. Yes, sir. 
I'm sorry, Mr. D did you have something? Just one thing. If you'd like to come to the lectern, please. Regarding marketability, uh, Justice Morgan has some questions. Um, any, any lawyer certifying title for a residential transaction is going to have to determine whether or not there's a residential deed restriction on the property, period. That, that's got to be in the title opinion. And, and, and just as was mentioned earlier, define that residential restriction. This is what you're going to find in 99 out of 100 cases, which is a, pa a whole set of restrictions. So it imposes no additional burden on the title searcher to go and find those restrictions with that exception. Um, the other point, if I may, um, the, uh, it's, it's, it's not appropriate to conflate deed restriction cases which say you should interpret those narrowly with statutorily uh, interpret cases involving statutory interpretation which does not have that limitation. That's all. Thank you. Unless there's any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank you, everyone. All rise.